I get asked frequently, would you sit down with the president to talk about infrastructure? And I've always said, yes, of course. You know, just because I disagree with somebody doesn't mean I'm not going to do everything I can to fight for the things that people in my district need. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is a podcast about big decisions, the kinds we face when failure is not an option, the kind that Alexander the Great made when he landed his troops on the shores of Persia and ordered his men to burn the boats. There was no turning back. In episode two, I talked to Mikey Sherrill, former Navy pilot and federal prosecutor and current representative for New Jersey's 11th Congressional District. A Democratic congresswoman for less than a year, Mikey is already making waves. She challenged her own party's leadership by voting against Nancy Pelosi for Speaker of the House. And she has become an outspoken advocate for impeachment investigations into President Trump. Well, Mikey Sherrill, it is... Awesome to have you on the show. Uh, Thank you so much for making time. How's the whole governing thing working out? It's certainly been um, a very interesting time to be in politics. And I have to say, I think the thing that was driving me crazy and so many of the people in my district crazy over the past couple of years was this idea that our voices weren't being heard. At no level of government did we have the pathway to have our voices um, heard. And now having the House, even though it's just one part of our government and, you know, we're still in divided government, just having the House, I think, has been so incredibly important to be able to work towards the things I think we all know um, this country needs us to work on. Well, in terms of being heard and ensuring that your constituents are heard, you have an uncanny ability to make that happen, to project your voice without slamming your fist on the table. I thought it was really funny among the Superlatives used to describe you like the most important new woman in Congress, rising star of the party, the future of democratic politics. This gem, unfailingly polite. <laughs> I don't know where that <laughs> well, came from. Well, I think after all of those are sort of that you've never heard of, <laughs> you know, the most this, that, and the other thing that you've never heard of, but unfailingly polite. Wow, I'm gonna have to tell my husband that. One. <laughs> I don't know. I know. I don't know that he's gonna agree. <laughs> I am using that as an entree to to maybe a, a bigger question about the responsibilities of a lawmaker. If they change when you become responsible for an entire congressional district, I mean, you have a responsibility to serve people who may disagree with you vehemently. How do you take that in? Well, I think, you know, everyone sort of asks the question, that question we we all kind of learn in civics and in grade school, do you follow your belief system when you vote or do you follow the will of your district? And I don't think it's an either or. You can best serve your district if you truly understand the people of your district, the needs of your district, and, and in many ways reflect that in what you've done with your life. So having served in the Navy, having served as a helicopter pilot and a Russian policy officer, and then serving at the U.S. Attorney's Office, not just as a federal prosecutor, but as, you know, somebody who's helped to start up the reentry program, the prisoner reentry program, and helping people coming out of federal prison and reenter their communities. I think all of these pieces of my past and, and of the focus that I've had reflect a lot of the thoughts of the district in some areas, sort of deep traditional beliefs in our country and what it means to be an American, but also progressive beliefs in, in how we tackle things like criminal justice reform. So I think 
that my belief system sort of reflects a lot of people in my district. And yes, you can't be all things to all people, but I do think that you are responsible for making people understand why you're voting a certain way or why you have a certain belief system. And they can agree or disagree at the end, but you owe you owe that to the people you serve. You owe them some understanding of how you're thinking about the hard issues, how you're voting on the difficult issues, and why you're doing that. And then they can make their decisions at their polling place, whether or not they agree with what you're doing. Have you ever had a real conflict laid bare between uh, a deeply held belief you have or, or a way that your conscience is telling you to vote and not just a, a vocal minority within your district, but the prevailing sentiment of your district. Have you have ever had to vote in the what you would consider the best interests of your district when they don't agree? That's a great question. I can think of more instances of sort of the piece you mentioned where there is a vocal group of people who feel passionately about something and I voted differently from the way they think I should vote. Now to say, has there ever been a large vote that I took that I think is not in line with my district? No. Now, it's just been six months. So, you know, that (laughs) certainly I assume it'll happen. I assume it will. But to date, I think the votes we've taken in the House have been largely supported in my district. Things like universal background checks for gun purchases and more voter transparency and bringing down health care costs. These are all things that I ran on and I think really comport with the views of the people in my district for the most part. Not to say there haven't been some tough and controversial votes. One of the first was a vote for Speaker of the House. How did you talk to your district about that and your decision there? Well, there were a couple things I had committed to people as I was running that I would be um, working towards new leadership. And to me, that meant not supporting Nancy Pelosi for Speaker. That was an important issue for many people in my district. In fact, um, many people, I think, voted for me based on that commitment. And so when I got into the House of Representatives, that was the very first vote I had to take. And it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do to enter into your new job and um, vote in a way that the leadership in your new job is not going to like very well. Mm. But it was important because I had made that commitment. And you still wound up with your preferred committee assignment, the retribution I'm sure people warned you about. It was tough. It was something I had to fight really hard for, but I thought it was important for my district. I wanted to be on the House Armed Services Committee Picatinny Arsenal is the largest employer in my district. That also is is an area that I have some background and expertise on. So I really felt like it was an important committee assignment to hold. And so I fought very hard to get on it. It, it was it was a fight. It wasn't um, easy. You know, I explained to the caucus why this was an incredibly important way for me to serve my district. And at the end of the day, that's what prevailed. So you now have this incredible perch from which to not only fight for your district, but advance one of the the few bipartisan issues left in Congress, which is the Armed Services Committee interests. And I'm, I'm wondering how you square that with your mandate going into the Congress as a progressive Democrat, having to work with people who on, on social issues have antithetical views. Are, are you able to as we would have said in the Navy, compartmentalize and just get stuff done. You know, the House Armed Services Committee is an interesting committee to be on, and many of the divisions in the committee don't break down 
along um, partisan lines. Many of the divisions don't break down along the social issues. And so, you know, a lot of times it breaks down along the lines of experience. Some of us think that it's appropriate to have some cases of sexual assault hurt outside the chain of command, and some people don't. And a lot of the people that don't think that have been um, at the top of the chain of command, and they see it as a command issue, and they're very passionate about it. And I certainly feel as if we've given the military enough time to handle it appropriately within the chain of command, and we're just not seeing the results that we want to see, so we need to try something different. So, of course, in this NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, out of committee we passed some legislation to have a special counsel hear these cases um, instead of the superintendents of the academy. So we'll see how that works. But, you know, in that instance, it broke down differently. But in the larger group in the House, I do work with people who probably, if I looked carefully at their votes, I wouldn't be happy with all of their votes. I get asked frequently, would you sit down with the president to talk about infrastructure? And I've always said, yes, of course. You know, just because I disagree with somebody doesn't mean I'm not going to do everything I can to fight for the things that people in my district need. So I think it's important that where we can build those bridges, where we can find areas where there's wide agreement and we can get legislation passed, we need to do that. And that's something that I, I have been encouraging leadership to do, and I hope to see the House do more of. Well, you're certainly living up to that. If reports are correct, you've co-sponsored a bill with Joe Wilson. And just for context, I mean, Joe Wilson is the congressman who, some would say, I would say, debased the institution of which you are a part by saying you lied to President Obama on the House floor. The reforms I'm proposing would not apply to those who are here illegally. It's not true yet you have found common ground. I mean, that is a big gap to bridge. Can you share your, your thinking on that? Yes, and, and I, I hear you. I thought that was a pretty, pretty much a low moment of our recent State of the Union addresses. But putting the country first and putting um, our troops first is something that I've committed to doing. And that's what I did in this instance. Um, so yes, I think it was important um, to reach across the aisle to build uh, as much support within the House Armed Services Committee, he sits on the House Armed Services Committee, as possible to ensure that we got that in the National Defense Authorization Act and, and we were successful in doing so. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. You've sort of described a lawmaker's responsibility as different than a citizen's responsibility who, who is not making laws and forced to make those compromises. But that has been a journey for you. You have been a representative for six months. I would imagine your concept of rights and responsibilities of, uh, of citizenship was a little simpler at one point in time, especially throwing on the flight suit and heading out for a mission in your sea king. Is that fair to say that, that 
that transition has been an evolution? It's certainly been an evolution. You know, sometimes when you're not legislating, you're thinking of, in a vacuum, the best way we could proceed. And yet, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on the case, in Congress, you have to, especially in a divided government like this, to make progress on an issue, to get legislation passed, you have to get it through the House of Representatives, then you have to get through the Senate, get Mitch McConnell to even put it on the floor for a vote, and then get a vote on it, and then have the president sign it into law. And so that's very different from operating in a vacuum or being um, somebody in the community advocating for change. I think people in the community looking at the best possible solutions and advocating for them, that is an important role. But I have a different role as a member of Congress now. I have the role of trying to get to the best possible result for people in my district and across the country. And it's not always the best solution, but I have to come to the best solution, you know, within the divided government and getting legislation passed. And it's it's a responsibility I take very seriously. I really appreciate how you're describing that, that your responsibility differs, but that if I'm hearing you right, you don't begrudge those in your district, in your community, especially those advocates who are fighting for the perfectly correct solution, even though it might be politically impossible. You said everyone has a role, but yours is different. Right. I think it's incredibly important. We have a caucus with a lot of diversity and very diverse opinions. And we want to hear. You know, often when a ship runs aground, there were people on the bridge of the ship that knew it was going to run aground and they didn't say anything to the captain of the ship because they were afraid of the captain or the captain didn't want any other opinions. You know, kind of that old, if I want your opinion, I'll tell you what it is kind (laughs) of thing. But for whatever reason, people on the bridge knew what was happening, but didn't inform the captain and the, the ship ran aground. And I think it's critical that people on the ground here talk up. That they speak up about what they see happening, that they speak up about the concerns they have and how we need to move forward in this country. And I don't think it's a good path to have somebody at the top telling everybody what the plan is and nobody gets out of line and nobody speaks up. And if they're concerned about certain issues, they don't discuss those issues. And and I think we've seen a little bit too much of that in the Republican Party, a little bit, you know, people too afraid to speak up and too afraid to talk about some issues that we have in this country. So it's important. It's important to have people on the ground advocating for what they believe in. But, you know, my job is a bit different from that. And I think because of my background, because of of understanding in the Navy how you need to work with a team to get the mission accomplished and get everybody on the same sheet of paper so you can get things accomplished. I think, you know, that's kind of lent some sort of background to my view now that if I want to get stuff done, I've got to get people on board. You know, it's not enough to come up with a great plan if I can't get it passed through the House, if I can't get McConnell to take it up and pass it in the Senate, if I can't get the president to sign it. Then it's really just me advocating for a great plan, but not getting anything accomplished for the American people. Right. Do you think the massive influx of military vets into this class in Congress has had an effect on the sensibility there, on this idea that you've just articulated, on the get shit done (laughs) mentality that we operated (laughs) under? In uniform. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that language. No. <laughs> <laughs> unfailingly polite. Yeah, unfailingly polite. That's what everybody says about all of us here in New Jersey, I'm sure. Yeah, I think it's it's 
it's definitely had an impact. In fact, I would say in the Democratic caucus, a lot of the national security and foreign affairs expertise is in the freshman class. I often hang out with a group I call the Gang of Nine, and it's nine veteran and CIA members. Many of us are on armed services, some are on homeland security, some are on veterans affairs, some are on foreign affairs. So this background that we have, you know, the service to the country that's really called us all to run for office and now as we're serving has informed our opinions of the world, I think is incredibly important. So, you know, I think a lot of us had been hearing about how the Russians attempted to influence our election system. And there have been movements throughout the House to support the election system. So we've given money, you know, New Jersey, we don't have paper ballots yet. We're we're working on that. We are looking at how to ensure that voter registration is secure, how to ensure that our, our ballot boxes are secure, our polling places are secure. But what seems to be missing from the conversation is how the Russians use social media and used, you know, infiltrated different groups, protest groups to really create divisiveness and to influence the elections. And that's something that I think many of us have seen overseas. You know, we've seen the Russians influence other democracies. We know what they've been doing over the past several decades. And so to come to Congress in a time when the Russians have attempted to influence our democratic elections, there hasn't been the focus on it. You know, where is a kind of all hands on deck to protect the 2020 election mentality that we would expect to see? And I think there was some reporting that um, the former Secretary of Homeland Security tried to come up with a 2020 plan for the president, and, and she couldn't even get that on his desk. So. We have taken it upon ourselves. We formed um, a task force century to really drill down into exactly what happened in 2016 and what the legislation should be so that we can protect 2020. Does it scare you at all that six months into the job on one of the biggest stages on Earth, you are the Russia expert? (laughs) Well, I don't think it's scary in the sense that we have a lot of resources. And because I come from that background, know people that, quite frankly, have far more Russian expertise than I do. Mine's a bit dated. But I think the thing that I can lean on that not everybody in the caucus can is an understanding of where to go for information. And as we hold hearings in the Armed Services Committee, an understanding of how to kind of get to the bottom. You know, there's ways of of sort of misdirection and stuff when you don't want to answer a question. I think being on the Armed Services Committee with people who've served in the military, with people who've served in the CIA, has been critically important to really getting to ground truth on some of the issues that we're facing. And has that camaraderie amongst fellow representatives who have similar backgrounds, has that helped to drive away some of the partisanship? Or are you talking about people who are all Democrats and and of the same mind? You know, we're working very hard to overcome the partisanship. In fact, I'm also in the Four Country Caucus, which is a bipartisan group of veterans that really uh, works on legislation. And and we're sort of starting with some low-hanging fruit. The Four Country Caucus, what's the history there? That just started. Part of the reason it just started is because this is the freshman class in the Democratic Caucus with the largest amount of veterans. In fact, we've doubled the number of women veterans in the House of Representatives. But before you get too excited, it went from two to four. (laughs) So we're still a little low on numbers there. But yeah, so the four country caucus is working hard. But Again, you know, right now we're starting with a little bit, like I was saying, the lo- of the low-hanging fruit, things regarding gold star families and veterans and issues that where there's wide agreement. But I think in, in working 
with people across the aisle and, and what I call building kind of that muscle memory of legislating with Republicans and what that means, I think we can move on to bigger issues. And I hope we can move on to bigger issues and develop sort of a bit of trust. Certainly, there are going to be areas where we find agreement and where everyone in the country would expect us to find agreement. But then there are evolving opportunities. I'm on the Science, Space and Technology Committee as well. I'm the chairwoman of the Oversight Committee. And, you know, I get asked a lot about climate change because in the last Congress, in the 115th, the chairman of the Science, Space, and Technology Committee didn't believe in climate change science. So, you know, one of the first full committee hearings we held was on climate change. And the Republican panel member spoke very compellingly about the need to address climate change. So I think that movement really speaks to greater opportunities. I'd say the Florida delegation, um, for example, many of the Republicans in the Florida delegation are concerned about climate change because of what they're seeing in Florida. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) how could that be? You know, these are new opportunities. So if we already have built those bridges, as the new opportunities open up, we could continue to build on that. Well, that's comforting and uh, all the more so because we have folks like you and and your gang of nine. What was the biggest surprise for you, good or bad, when you showed up and started the job? Um, Well, there's good and bad surprises. I guess the bad surprise was a little bit that I guess how unsurprising it was, how much we had um, sensed that something was wrong in Congress and then to get into Congress and be like, yep, this is kind of what we thought it was. I I guess I had hoped, because I'm sort of a perennial optimist, that I would get into Congress and think, oh, wow, no, you know, you hear a lot of stuff on TV, but people are really working together incredibly well, and everyone's sort of uh, behind the scenes working together and, and getting things done. The problems with partisanship are real. The misunderstandings across the aisle are real. You know, my district expects me to get legislation passed and accomplished, and they expect me to do so in a bipartisan way. So that's frustrating. I would say the good news is this freshman class feels like it is making a tremendous difference. You know, we are working on things like building those bridges. You know, I think there are probably more people who have relationships with Republicans in general than, you know, we've had throughout the caucus um, since at least 2010. We've we've really come into office with that mandate. And so you have, like I said, the Gang of Nine, but then you have other people from across the country that have that same sense that we've got to get Congress working again. And with this kind of powerful group of freshmen, you do feel that change is possible. If, if it had just been me, if I just got into Congress and I was working by myself as a freshman, I don't think I would have that same sense of hope that we could really foment change that I do because of the wonderful class I'm in. Well, that is a great note to end on. Mikey, thanks so much for for being on the show, for, for giving us your time. Keep up the fight. Well, Ken, thanks so much. It's great talking to you. Thanks again to Mikey Sherrill for joining me. Mikey is the representative for New Jersey's 11th Congressional District. She serves on the House Armed Services Committee and the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee. Mikey and I talked about standing up to leadership. She voted against Nancy Pelosi for Speaker of the House, and she is challenging President Trump by pushing for impeachment investigations. We wanted to hear about a time when you challenged authority. Here's what we heard. When I was in fifth grade, I got in trouble for shouldering this horrible boy in my class, and in turn, I got a check on my behavior chart. 
And I had to bring it home every week to get it signed by my parents so they knew that I had done something bad. And I really didn't want to get in trouble, so I forged their signature. And then I found out that you brought the same chart home every week. So it became this game of me forging my signature over and over again to avoid getting caught for having forged the first time. So I did that for like 10 weeks, and needless to say, that did not end well for me. So when I was about 18 years old, I led sailing trips off the coast of Maine in Penobscot Bay. And I had kids on the boat, probably most of them around age 12. And I was the captain of a fleet of three boats, all similarly situated with basically college-age skippers and a group of kids. Well, the coast of Maine is rocky and full of hazards, islands, channels. And um, one day the fog was so thick we could not see the end of our boat I could steer the boat. I could barely see the mast. And I've been taught my whole sailing career how to navigate around Coast Guard markers. They're not buoys. They're never to be tied up to. You know, there were places where you were allowed to tie up and places where you're not allowed to tie and allowed to anchor. Well, it was, as I said, foggy like pea soup fog. You can't see a thing. And I basically against the rules, against the regulations, grabbed the Coast Guard buoy and tied up to it and then had the two other boats tie up to me. And I thought, okay, this is completely illegal and I have a boat of 12-year-olds here. So I basically said, I, you know, I'd rather keep these kids uh, safe. And uh, I got on our radio and called the Coast Guard and said, I'm tied up to your buoy. And I was expecting them to yell at me. And uh, the Coast Guard people said, thank you for doing the right thing and looking out for these kids and you stay right where you are until it's safe to leave. And so I guess the lesson I learned from that is sometimes it's okay to do something that goes against the established rule that's set by the authority. You know, rules are important until they're not. Next time, I'm talking to Gina Ortiz-Jones, Air Force veteran and congressional candidate in Texas's 23rd District. She tells me about the tough decision her mother made to immigrate here from the Philippines and about the challenges of being a gay service member under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And we want you to join our discussion. Tell us about a time when two parts of your identity seemed to be in conflict or when you felt you had to choose between different parts of yourself. Leave us a message at 216-245-5461 or send a voice memo to burntheboats at evergreenpodcasts.com. The number again is 216-245-5461. We can't wait to hear from you. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Our theme music is Climbing to Greatness by Cody Martin. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, 
and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.